Hi, I'm Dr. Pam Peek, and welcome to episode 312 of her, the podcast where you're going to hear the naked truth about her mind, her body, her life, and today, her keto life. Uh-huh. And we probably have one of the top experts in the field, Gary Tobbs, to really lead us down the path. If you could just wait one second, I just want to make sure everyone knows that this terrific show coming up is sponsored by Smarty Pants Women's Vitamins, the delicious once-a-day gummies that contain all of the essential vitamins, minerals, and omega oils customized just for women. To learn more, hop on over to smartypantsvitamins.com. Here's your first reminder to click on iTunes after the episode to rate and review the show because I love hearing from you. My whole team's just sitting there twiddling their thumbs, waiting to hear from you, so you better do it. All right, it's time for Her. Her, the podcast. The naked truth about women. Her mind. Her body. Her life. It's all about her. Raise your hand if you've ever tried the keto diet. Ha! That's exactly what I thought. Somehow I can see all these thousands of people. But I know you've tried it. Definitely. Maybe some of you are just rocking and rolling on it. What the hell is this? Anyway, the only person I know who could really sort of set a lot of this straight and really describe the science behind uh, what this keto revolution is really all about is Gary Tobbs. Gary is an investigative science and health journalist and co-founder of the nonprofit Nutrition Science Initiative. He's the author of the Case Against Sugar, this was published in 2016, Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It, 2011, and Good Calories, Bad Calories, and this was published in 2007. Okay, now we have a brand new book. It's called The Case for Keto. All right, Gary, why'd you write the book? Well, it's just so much confusion out there. I've been reporting on this famously and infamously since uh, 2002, uh, New York Times Magazine cover, and spent five years doing research on the history and the science, and then turned into my first book, and then this not-for-profit, the Nutrition Science Initiative, and, and as this has happened, thousands, probably t a few tens of thousands of physicians around the world have embraced these low-carbohydrate, high-fat, ketogenic diets as the best way for them to eat and what they're telling their patients to eat to, you know, deal with the overweight and obesity and diabetes and the whole slew of chronic conditions. And with that, just has come a lot of understanding about how best to eat this way, how to think about it, how to you know, deal with it, and also a lot of confusion. And so I thought this was kind of the book we needed today to to set things straight. And I, for it, I, I had all my journalistic um, research, but I also interviewed another 120-plus physicians who have converted to this way of thinking. So that means they now eat ketogenic or low-carb, high-fat diets themselves, and they prescribe it to their patients, and they think it's the most important thing they could tell their patients to do. And uh, so that context, I thought, often gets lost in all this, that now doctors, you know, when I started this 20 years ago, 
there may be half dozen physicians in the country or in the world that were prescribing these diets to their patients, and then the patients would go see some other doctor, and that doctor would say, oh, you lost 40 pounds, how'd you do that? And the patient would go, oh, I've been eating what was then called Atkins, and then the doctor would go, oh, that's going to kill you, you got to stop doing that, and then they'd gain the weight back and go on from there. Now, we know they're healthy, and you've got, you know, again, a few tens of thousands of doctors who are telling their patients to eat this way. So I wanted to understand what they had learned and communicate that in a book. I love it. I, I absolutely love it. Well, you know what I also love is the fact that, you know, the way you started this book out, you basically stated the point. I am not writing this book, you said, for the lean and healthy of the world although I certainly believe they can benefit by reading it. I'm writing it for those who fatten all too easily, who are drifting inexorably toward overweight, obesity, diabetes, and hypertension, or some combination of them, or who are already afflicted and are living at increased risk of heart disease, stroke, and in fact, all chronic disease. And I'm writing it for their doctors. I thought that that was pretty bold. That's pretty cool. You didn't just sort of throw it out there. You basically said, okay, this is, this is who I'm targeting. This is where it's going. Um, and, I, and I love that, Gary. Um, you know, when you wrote that, what were you thinking? Well, there's a, a vitally important issue here that gets lost. So over the decades, the idea of these keto diets, again, when I was young, it was just called Atkins. And when Atkins was young, it had a different name. And it goes all the way back to... She's 1825. But um, they're always perceived as fad diets. So the idea is we know, we know why people get, get fat and overweight. They eat too much and they exercise too little. And we know what constitutes a healthy diet. And that's fruits, mostly plants, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, uh, legumes, lean meat in moderation, nuts. And so if you're you know, if you have trouble controlling your weight and you have trouble controlling your blood sugar, what you have to do is eat less and eat this sort of generically healthy diet. And that's what lean people do. So lean people eat what they're told to eat, and or they don't, but they stay lean anyway. And when the rest of us go to these, you know, say, hey, that doesn't work for us. Like if I eat that generically healthy diet, I'm going to get fatter or I'm going to be hungrier or some combination of the two. Um, that message has never really gotten across. So uh, the lean people don't need advice. Whatever they're doing at the moment is working. I mean, I, I think they could benefit from having a better understanding of how their bodies work and how their bodies tolerate the carbohydrates they consume, but they don't need the advice. The rest of us do. And what we're being told by the sort of public health authorities is the advice that works for lean people, or at least it seems to, but it doesn't work for us. So that's the issue is um, once the conventional thinking stops working for you, so the world is full of people who eat exactly as they're told to eat. They don't go to McDonald's every day. They're not getting, you know, sucking down four Coca-Colas and six beers every day. They're eating exactly the way they're told to eat. They're trying to exercise regularly like we all do, and they're getting fatter or diabetic anyway. And, and you know, as well, just picking up on that, if I can, um, I mean, this book has so much rich material in it. So now we have uh, a number of interesting ways to attack this out there. 
so people now, you know, are looking at a variety of themes that uh, that play with the percentage of um, fat in the diet or the grams for that matter. So if you're going absolutely strict, uh, you're talking about 25 to 50 grams of carb in the diet, okay? And then making up the rest of it with um, fat primarily and then obviously protein. So, you know, some people find that to be a, a great kind of launch pad into this. And then they start loosening up a bit, um, still keeping it way below the typical carbohydrate intake, which in the American diet, as you know, is probably five to 600 grams, mostly processed on a routine basis. So many of them take it up to 100, 125 grams and uh, basically, you know, feel fine, have dropped a boatload of weight, uh, feel that their biometric indices, um, things like hemoglobin A1C, blood sugar, et cetera, et cetera, have corrected quite nicely. But I think that there's almost a little stereotype out there that everyone has to be more of the 50-gram place. What, what's your thought on that? Well, I take a much more simplistic approach to all this because, I, you know, you go shopping. And let's say if you're buying processed foods, you could look at, um, you know, the number of grams of carbohydrates they contain per serving. And then you have to look at how big a serving is. And then you're estimating how many servings you're eating and how many grams of carbohydrates you're eating. It gets very complicated very quickly. And that's one reason why, by the way, most people in our space say don't eat processed foods. If it comes in a box or a package, like, let's just ignore that to begin with. But, and this is what I mean that I wrote the book to sort of simplify this and put it all in context. The fundamental idea behind keto, despite the fancy language of ketogenic diets and ketosis and ketogenesis, and is carbohydrates are fattening, okay? So for those of us who fatten easily, a terminology I admit that I stole from 1950s diet books because it's appropriate, we all know who we are. For those of us who have to struggle to maintain a healthy weight or struggle to maintain our college weight or our high school weight or whatever we wanna do, it's the carbohydrates in the diet that are triggering that. Okay, and the idea is they work through this hormone insulin, and insulin is not, it doesn't just control blood sugar as we've always think of it, because insulin is dysregulated in diabetes. It also uh, regulates fat accumulation. So when you secrete insulin, you store fat. When insulin comes down, you mobilize that fat and burn it for fuel. And the idea is those of us who get fat easily are trapping fat in our fat tissue every day that we're not using not because we don't exercise enough or we're eating too much, but because our insulin levels are elevated, higher than they should be. So fundamentally, the idea is carbohydrates are fattening. If you don't want to be overweight, obese, if you don't want to fatten easily, then you can't eat those foods. Now, the more highly refined and processed they are, the higher the glycemic index, the worse they're going to be. The more fructose they have in them, the more sugar, the sweeter they are, the worse they're going to be. So there's gradations. You can improve your diet, improve the, you know, minimize the effect of these fattening carbohydrates by improving the quality of carbs you're eating. Or you could begin to restrict them, or you could just say, look, these foods are fattening to me. I'm not going to eat them. If you don't eat them at all, now you're not counting grams, right? You're just living on 
foods that are made of protein and fat and green leafy vegetables, which have precious few carbohydrates, digestible carbohydrates in them. So what is your, you know, go-to kind of foundation uh, for people to kind of aim for optimal health in terms of the percentages of carbohydrate um, or even grams, whatever, um, of the three macronutrients? Well, again, in, in an ideal world, and the phrase I use in the book, which I borrow from a book that was written in 1825, the most famous book ever written about food, which is called The Physiology of Taste. It's been in print since 1825. It's a French book. And the author there says, you know, it's more or less rigid abstinence to carbs. So I, I literally, I don't get into, I don't think I mention a gram level in the book, because if you're getting your weight under control, if you've cut your carbs back enough, so sugar, starches, grains, right? That's what we're talking about. If you've cut them back enough that you're losing weight and getting down to the weight you want to be at, and I'm going to have to say you replace those calories with fat, but we'll get into that, then nobody has to tell you that you're eating too much or too few grams of carbohydrates. If you've cut them back and you're not losing significant weight and your, your, you know, risk factors for heart disease, your biometric measures, as you put it, don't improve significantly, then you probably haven't cut it back enough. And I'm a big fan of total abstinence from sugar, starches, and grains, because I think if you don't do this right, and I also discuss there's a physiological reason for this as well, but if you don't do it right, you'll never know if it's going to work for you. Go to the physiologic reason. Okay, the physiological reason is fascinating. So I talked about insulin um, being the hormone, the dominant hormone that regulates fat accumulation. So all other hormones tend to work to get fat out of your fat cells. They're telling your body to do something. And in the process of doing that, they tell your body to make the fuel available for that thing to be done. So adrenaline, if you're going to run from a charging lion, the adrenaline tells your fat cells to dump fat fatty acids into the bloodstream so you could use that fatty acid for fuel and run maybe faster and farther than the lion does. If you can't run as far as the lion, you're in trouble, right? So insulin is a hormone that works the opposite way. And when I started doing my research on this 20 years ago and the researchers who had made sort of elucidated our understanding of the hormonal control of fat metabolism were still alive, and I could interview them. They use this phrase that fat tissue is exquisitely sensitive to insulin. So what that means is the insulin is telling your fat tissue to hold on to the fat it's stored. And if there's a tiniest bit of insulin in the bloodstream, your fat tissue will be sensitive to it, and it will hold on to the fat. So when studies were done, quantifying this effect, what you ended up having an effect was like a switch. So the, the fat cells stay sensitive to insulin until insulin gets very low, and as soon as they can't detect it, the switch is shown and they start dumping fat into the bloodstream so you could burn it for fuel. It's one of the two graphs I use in the book to show this effect. And if you're below that threshold, you're almost assuredly going to be in ketosis. You know, you're going to be generating ketones. You're now eating a keto diet. But you won't really know until, and if you're below that threshold, you'll be losing weight. So one way to know if you're under the threshold is you're losing fat and burning it for fuel 
in theory, you know, most likely you'll have detectable levels of ketones. But the idea is that threshold, for those of us who fatten easily, that threshold is very low. Very low. And the way you get under it is you basically abstain from sugar, starches, and grains, uh, foods that elevate insulin, and you replace those calories with healthy fats. So again, you don't really have to, to understand this, you know, you could target a gram level and say get under 25 grams, you'll probably be in ketosis. But those physicians I interviewed, and again, there are 120 of them plus, they, they never thought, of, they didn't really care even that much about ketosis. They thought of this as just getting their patients off of carbohydrates. I love that. I'm sorry. I'm just going to tell you right now, I love that. And that is, um, you know, it, it's really at the end of the day, uh, Gary, it's customizing. What works for me in terms of the amount of carbohydrate I have in my life, um, yeah, I'm saying um, a healthy carbohydrate, maybe very different uh, than what works for you because of your own physiology, your own history, et cetera, et cetera. Even if you go back to Atkins, um, <clears throat> he had some good ideas. So the idea was, you know, when I first started writing about this 20 years ago and doing the research and people would talk to me, and the first question you always get is, can, what can I eat? Can I have a potato? Can I have a cheat day? You know, a lot of people advocate for cheat days. They think if you get to cheat one day a week, then you're more likely to stick with this. I'm, I'm not a fan of that thinking because I used to be a smoker. And if somebody had told me I got to smoke one day a week, I would still be a smoker, right? And I wouldn't be smoking one day a week, I'd be smoking every day because I know it's impossible for me to limit that kind of craving to one day a week. So um, if you remember that phrase, more or less rigid abstinence to carbohydrates, if you go rigid, if you get rid of all these starches, sweets, grains, and you're eating, you know, again, I'm, it's easiest to do this with animal sourced foods. You can do it vegan or vegetarian, it's difficult. But animal source foods, meat, fish, fowl, are basically all they are, protein and fat, and a tiny little bit of carbs we could, the form of glycogen that we could ignore. So you're eating meat, fish, or fowl, cheese, fats like healthy fats like butter or lard or olive oil, and then you're getting your, you know, your green leafy vegetables you're getting. If you're doing that, it should work. It works for a huge proportion of the people. And by work, I mean you should be able to lose weight relatively effortlessly without ever being hungry. Kind of that's all you have to know. And as you're losing weight, you're going to be getting healthier. I mean, nowadays, a great thing is that physicians can quantify your health as you do it. So you get your lipid blood tests, you get your A1C, you've got, you know, there are dozens of risk factors they look at so they can demonstrate you can actually see yourself getting healthier just as you feel yourself getting healthier. Huh. So, so let me, let me play with this a little bit. What do you tell a vegetarian? I mean, they're, they're getting a boatload of carbohydrate, needless to say, but, um, and it's, it should be, knock on wood, um, let's just assume that they are, you know, absolutely healthy carbohydrate eaters. You know, they're getting lots of vegetables and, you know, maybe some fruit, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what do you tell someone like that or even a vegan? Well, again, it depends, you know, if they're, if they're lean and relatively healthy now and they don't need to lose weight, they don't need to get their blood sugar under control, then do what you're doing. That's basically the advice. I mean, I think, you know, the, should tell everyone not to eat 
you know, drink sugary beverages and cut back on sweets. I think sugar is the primary evil in modern diets. Um, and anyone will be healthier if they cut back on their sugar consumption. But if they were, this is the point, if they're relatively lean and healthy and they're happy with their health and their weight, then don't change. The, if they're not, now we have to talk about it's not a, this is the issue. It's not about how much they're exercising. It's not about how much they're eating. It's about this sort of hormonal. It is a hormonal issue, and the problem is insulin. So how can we get your insulin down? So we can improve the quality of the carbs you're eating. So again, you know, more fiber, less easily digestible starches, get rid of all the processed foods. We can actually add fat so you can get your calories from fat. I, my next book is going to be about diabetes, and I'm reading about and writing about diabetes therapies before insulin was discovered. And the way you kept diabetes under control without insulin is you zero carbs, a little bit of protein, and the rest was fat. I'm writing right now about a Swedish professor at the University of Lund who was, you know, his diabetics were thriving on basically butter and heavy cream and green vegetables. You know, so you can add, again, as a vegetarian and particularly a vegan when you're avoiding um, any sources of animal fat, like even, you know, dairy, butter, and um, you, you've got to get your fats from vegetable oils, which um, there are some that we think are benign, uh, olive oil and, and coconut butter and coconut oil, um, avocado oil. Uh, they have more saturated fats, fewer polyunsaturated fats. Um, so you use those uh, liberally for your calories. Um, it's harder to do vegetarian and vegan because um, your protein sources are vegetable sourced, and they tend to come with carbohydrates. So beans and legumes and are lower in carbohydrates than starches, but they still have a significant carbohydrate content, so it can be a problem. But it can be done. It can be done with seeds. And yeah, one of the, my favorite chapter in the new book, I start the end of the book, I have all the, the lessons that I've learned from these physicians. And one of them was from a spine surgeon in Ohio named Kerry Doulis, who um, had comes from a family history of obesity, and said she would have weighed 300 pounds if she hadn't figured this out. She was on her way to being 300 pounds, and then she also became a type 1 diabetic. Meanwhile, being a spine surgeon, where you have to be, you know, very good at what you do and extremely alert, and uh, she found that her body can't tolerate animal products. It just has, so they can't do it. So she eats a vegan ketogenic diet, and I discuss what it is. And it's, you know, it takes work. All of this takes work. Eating healthy always takes work. That's one of the other lessons. But anyway, Carrie told me it's not, what she said is it's not a religion. It's just about how she feels. And she feels best without animal products. But she tells her patients if they don't have ethical issues with, with you know, livestock agriculture, then eat the animals because it's, it's a hell of a lot easier and you can be more confident that you're getting a well-balanced, well-formulated diet that provides all your, you know, needs. I love it. I love it. You know, what I've been doing, I'm a circadian rhythm person. I, I really like it. It just works for me at my time in my life, it's just, it feels great. So I tend not to eat like late. Um, and I, I like to be able to kind of go with the flow as it were. 
um, with uh, insulin secretion, optimizing the morning and the early afternoon, etc. And I have found that I responded beautifully to increasing my healthy fat and to uh, all but eliminating, um, you know, processed sugar and to uh, really concentrate on uh, healthy um, uh, carbohydrate intake, I'd probably guess, guesstimate that my, you know, daily carbs probably hit around 100 you know, grams um, if you're going to kind of go to that place. But maybe anywhere between 100 and 150 sort of depends because I'm also a triathlete and I train. And so that's another complicator in all this. But really, I, I just I love the fact that you're really emphasizing customization. I think um, early on, a lot of people felt uh, you know, consumers and providers alike, and I am a physician, you know, felt that maybe uh, some of the keto was really spending way too much time, you know, checking your urine, obsessing over whether or not you were in or out of ketosis, uh, making sure that you were ridiculously low in your carbohydrate um, intake, um, thinking that that was nirvana, um, really only to find out that people do what people do, which is, you know, well, that's not working for me so much, but I kind of like the concept. The whole thing sounds great. So I'm going to loosen up a little bit enough to just sort of see where my body goes. And that's exactly what you're saying. You know, customize, yeah. experiment. Yeah. And there's a lot of personal experimentation in all of this. But again, you know, you have to understand this sort of fundamental principle which is again carbohydrates are fattening okay that's what you know our mother's generation believed and our grandmothers and um they were right that's that's the issue and that's one reason when you look at photos of 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 you know uh, crowds or, or people pre-1950s they all look so you know remarkably slender um but hey they had a different type of carbohydrates they were they, they weren't drowning in sugar and, and, and white flour quite yet, and the, the generational effects of this problem hadn't kicked in, but um, they just had an understanding. If you didn't want to get, you know, fat, you didn't eat bread, pasta, potatoes, starches, you know, it was just, that was a choice. Um, and so that's still the choice, and it's, it's almost trivial. The first time somebody suggested to me that I write uh, you know, my first book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, was a was a tome and is as much kind of an academic dissertation as it is a popular book, despite the title. And then the first time somebody suggested to me that that I write a book that people could read, communicating this messages, and I said, well, you know, what's it going to say? Carbohydrates are fattening. Don't eat them. Um, and if you're fine, like you, you know, I think the benefit of exercise is it basically keeps blood sugar under control, right? So that basically keeping your carb, it's burning off the carbs you're eating, which is good for you. But the other way to deal with it is not to eat those carbs. And for some people, they're going to store fat anyway. And if you want to reverse that process, you have to you have to avoid it. It's just not that complicated. There are other issues though, that people have to keep in mind, even with... You know, I said before, one of the other lessons that came out of this book that uh, came from a, a physician in uh, Virginia, Sue Wolver, who's at the Virginia Commonwealth University, and, and wonderful. She'd been doing this for like 10 years with her patients, and she told me, you know, she'd never got a patient to lose weight before. 
period in 25 years of medicine. Then she switched from sort of conventional wisdom to teaching them carb restriction and high fat diets, and suddenly, you know, pretty much anyone could lose significant weight. Um, she said, you got to practice. Like everything in life, you can't expect to be good at it off the get-go. And so then when I said, you know, that eating healthy takes work, eating healthy to keep your weight under control and keep your blood sugar under control takes work, but you have to do the right thing. You have to know what you're working at. And again, that's the kind of message. So you can do it with your 100 grams of carbs and your, you know, m marathons or Ironman. I can pretty much guarantee that your knees work better than mine and you're not a, you know, 210 pound former athlete like I am because I can't even fantasize about running across the street anymore because of what I did to my knees in my youth. So for me, I can keep my weight under control by, by rigid abstinence to these carbs and I could still eat plenty of calories and get plenty of food. I'm never hungry. It's, you know. The other issue, you mentioned um, your circadian rhythms. So the TRE, TRE which time-restricted eating is, to me, it's kind of the flip side of intermittent fasting. So intermittent fasting, right, you mm -hmm. either fast every few days or every other day or part of a day or you don't eat lunch or, excuse me, don't eat, you know, you extend the time at which you're not eating. So, for instance, I started experimenting with intermittent fasting four years ago, and I liked it. But basically, I just gave up breakfast. So you could say I do time-restricted eating because I only eat between, you know, lunch at 12.30 in the afternoon and whenever I finish dinner. So I'm restricting my eating to seven hours. Or you could say I'm doing intermittent fasting because I'm fasting from the end of dinner through the beginning of lunch the next day. But this is another way of keeping your insulin down and extending the period of time during the day that you're burning your fat for fuel. Because when whenever you're eating and insulin goes up, you're burning carbs and storing fat. So it's another way to think about it. So people find that they can very effectively control their weight just by intermittent fasting. Even then, it, I think it tends to be easier if you restrict carbs also and eat healthy fats. But um, it's another approach to, in effect, sort of getting into ketosis or getting into a stage where, you know, lengthening the period of time during which you're burning your fat for fuel. Because the longer. Oh, there's no question about it. I, I just, I love the fact that everyone pivoted to the circadian rhythm in many respects because what it did was it, it helped us uh, sort of regain that context of when you begin to eat and when you end up eating um you know prior to that it was just an absolute well it still is um sadly uh free for all you know you just sort of it's free fall eating uh you eat 24 hours a day i mean there's just no end to it there's no beginning it just sort of keeps going and you kind of wedge some sleep in there somehow um, <laughs> well you're also hungry you know? 20 this is the other thing if you're the kind of person who's body is trying to store fat. When your body is trying to store fat, it's trying to burn carbs. So carbs are your fuel. Again, this is all regulated by insulin. Um, you can't store that many carbs, but even then as your blood sugar comes down and your insulin stays up, you're in a position where you start to crave food 
but you can't access the fat that you've stored. And so now you have to eat, and what you're going to eat is carbs. So not only do you sort of wake up at the carb-rich breakfast, but you then go, you're hungry mid-morning, mid so you have a carb-rich snack. You might drink your coffee with sugar in it or have a, you know, a, a soda or a juice during the morning to get fuel. So, so you're basically, not only are you eating 24 hours a day, but you're eating carbs 24 hours or let's say 17 hours a day. You're hungry after every, every hour or two hours because as your blood sugar starts coming down, your body starts craving the carbs that it's missing, and then you manifest that as hunger. All of this is kind of broken, and it's all being fueled and feeding back on the fact that you're storing fat because your insulin levels are elevated. So the way you break that habit, and again, when I talk to these physicians, just asking for their advice, like, how do you get patients into this? And some of them would say, here, read this book. Ideally, it's the case for keto now, you know, abstain from carbs and have a nice day. Some of them just said, look, if I could get my patients to change their breakfast, I can change their life and how they start to think about this. So instead of having the traditional healthy breakfast of, you know, special case cereal with bananas and milk and orange juice and toast, have eggs and bacon. It's not going to kill you or eggs and sausage, or eggs and salmon, or salmon and avocado, or some combination of protein and fat. And you will find that you're not hungry at 10 in the morning, and you're not hungry at 12 in the morning. You might even find that it's 2 in the afternoon before you start. You feel the need to have lunch, because suddenly you've lowered your, and you kept your insulin low, and you're mobilizing your fat, and you're burning it for fuel, and you're not craving anything. And then if that works, if you notice this change, then we could work on your lunch and your dinner. We could add intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating to it. And you only eat two meals a day instead of three, which also keeps the cost down because you're eating higher quality food than you used to. So there's a lot of ways this all feeds back into basically making people healthy. The other message, I know I'm rambling on here, no, you're not rambling. I mean, it's just fascinating. And what you're doing is you're you're tying pieces together, which is really important. I think that in many respects, uh, I bet the title could have been The Case for Low Carb. It could have been, although actually the original title was How to Think About How to Eat. And I even entertained the idea at one point in defense of fad diets. Um, I talk about this in the book. I was... You're right, right. Uh, uh, as to... Uh, you know, be a talking head on a British a BBC uh, documentary about fad diets, and they wanted what they wanted me to comment on because I had written, you know, good calories, bad calories, this, this exhaustive history of obesity and chronic disease research was why fad diets were so popular. Why do they never go away? Why are so many diet doctors out there pushing something other than the alternative wisdom. And I was thinking about how I was going to answer this while I was doing the interview. And it just struck me that the reason they're so popular is because the conventional wisdom doesn't work for people. It works for the lean people, but anything would work for them. So again, it's uh, the rest of us are getting fatter anyway, doing what we're told to do. And when that happens, if you've got any brains at all, you're going to look at some alternative, look for some alternative approach. You know, you're going to keep looking until you find something that works. And in, as soon as you go to the alternative approach, you're in fad diet land. And you might try a vegan diet or a vegetarian diet. And if you get healthier and you lose the excess weight, then you're probably going to stop there. And that's fine. It works for you. 
But if you don't get healthier and you don't lose the excess weight or your weight problem gets worse, then keep moving and looking for another one. This is a self-experimentation idea. The, my world is full of people who basically went through this routine, eventually got to some variation on keto, and it worked for us, and it convinced, and then the physicians, when it worked for them, every one of the physicians that I interviewed went through this kind of conversion experience. That's a Malcolm Gladwell term. They were getting heavier or getting diabetic. They were doing what they were supposed to do. They were exercising. Some of them were marathoners and triathletes, even world-class you know, world record holding triathletes who were doing what they were supposed to do and getting, you know, diabetic and heavy anyway. And then they tried vegan diets or vegetarian diets. They tried Mediterranean diets. They're probably eating Mediterranean diets anyway because that's what we've been told to do for 20 years. None of that worked. They got to low-carb, high-fat keto diets and they got healthy. And then they tried it on their patients. So this is the progression. It works on you, so you have some confidence that maybe it'll benefit your patients. And now you cautiously experiment, tell your patients, I think you can try this. We have enough clinical trials, we know it's healthy. It might make you healthy. And then as you, the more patients you make healthy, the more you can communicate that to the rest. And the point is these, all these physicians told me something that you've probably experienced. Um, they didn't go into medicine to manage chronic disease. And that's what they end up doing, especially in family medicine and internal medicine. They have obese and diabetic patients and they're managing their drugs. That's their life. You know, writing prescriptions, changing the prescription. I know, and as one of those doctors who spent so much time doing this, you know, before I went back in academia, it just, it needless to say, is not what you signed up for. But, you know, what you've offered in your book, The Case for Keto, uh, Gary, um, is a, a, a really nice um, way to be able to offer a welcome mat to people who want to be able to have a, uh, an opportunity to experiment and customize with uh, lower carbohydrate intake, um, primarily, of course, the processed carbs, which I think is fantastic. Everyone out there in the Herb Podcast land, we've been talking to Gary Tobbs, who is the author of The Case for Keto, and really, it's all about that low carb um, at the end of the day. Please run on over to his website at Gary Tobbs, that's T-A-U-B-E-S dot com, to learn more about his work and his other books as well, um, because we really need a hero out there, um, a real voice of reason and science to be able to uh, to really cut through the misinformation uh, and the confusion, as you mentioned before. So, Gary, all I can say is thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being on the Her Podcast. We really, really appreciate your your wisdom and your experience with this um, as a journalist and as obviously someone who lives and breathes it. So, Gary, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Pam. And everyone out there, please take a minute to hit iTunes, rate and review the show because we want to hear from you, especially me, because I'm Dr. Pam Peek, host of the Herb Podcast. Follow me on Facebook at Dr. Pam Peek or Twitter and Instagram at Pam Peek MD. And remember to catch every single episode of the Herb Podcast on iTunes or Radio MD. Thanks for listening today and please stay safe and stay well.